Welcome to the New Harvest Podcast. You are listening to part 9 of the 1st John Sermon Series. Today's sermon is called Perfect Love, and the scripture reading comes from the book of 1st John, chapter 4, verses 12 through 21. The Bible says, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So today we're going to uh, talk about like uh, what that verse, uh, what that passage said. We're going to talk about perfect love. So how do you know that God is real? Right. The existence of God is a question that many men have pondered about and contemplated for centuries. Right. Um, and his existence, it has never been more seriously and, and openly challenged than right now in modern times. So in the past, people did not question the existence of God. Right? They didn't question if there's a deity or divine beings or a higher power. The question was, which God or which gods are real? That was the question in, during the, uh, in the past in ancient times. But now the question actually is, is God real at all? Right? Is God really there? Um, can you prove that God exists? And so... Uh, in the 13th century, uh, a theologian of uh, by the name of Thomas Aquinas, you might have you may have heard of him. <laughs> uh, thanks, Alan, uh, gives us the most kind of classic and probably the most famous arguments uh, for the existence of God in his five ways. So he talks about the five ways. So I have them up here. The first way is God, the prime mover. The second way, God, the first cause. Uh, third way, God, the necessary being. Fourth way, God, the absolute being. And fifth way, God, the grand designer. So, you know, all of these arguments are like ways that through logic and reasoning that Thomas Aquinas want to prove the existence of God. So it's like the first one is there are obviously things in motion. Right. And so there must have been something that put all of these things in motion. So that is God. Right, i.e. the prime mover or the unmoved mover. And so the, the second way is uh, in the world there is a cause for every effect. Right, Nothing just happens. So there must have been something that first caused all of the things to happen. Right? That's God, the first cause. Right? And you know, the third one is things cannot really exist by themselves. So something had to cause them to exist. And so that's God, the necessary being. So you can kind of see where that goes. The fourth way is 
there's an absolute something. There's absolute truth. There's absolute like uh, goodness, absolute perfect. There's something, a perfect form of something else, right? That we get all the other forms from, right? Right. So there's like a perfect being, and then there's someone who's like good, and then someone that's okay, and like different degrees of a thing. And so God is that perfect thing, that absolute thing, absolute truth, pure light, perfect love. And so all of the other things come from that. And then the, the fifth one is there's a grand designer. If you look at the world, it seems like it's moving toward a particular direction, and all the natural things. Uh, seem to be moving, right, the way someone, some intelligent being intended it to be. So there, so there must be something that, someone that, that is doing that, the grand designer. So these are called uh, cosmological arguments because they seek to prove the existence of God by looking at the cosmos, the world around them, right? And then you kind of see his influence in the modern uh, evolution versus intelligent design or creationism debates, right? We, we kind of see like, you know, this idea of like grand designer or necessary being first cause, you know, like when you talk about like the creation of the world and Big Bang Theory and all those kind of things. And, you know, and, and then we also have the historical argument for Jesus, right? You know that God exists because of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came on earth, he claimed to be God, people saw him, there are records of him, you know, historical records that you can uh, trust. And so this proves that Jesus really was God because he did these miracles and people wrote them down for us to, you know, believe in them. Right, so Jesus proves the existence of God. And then there are, there are other people who kind of point to spiritual experiences, right? Like, uh, I saw God, I heard God's voice, I had a vision, I met God at retreat, or, you know, like those, like, uh, those Christian movies, like 90 Minutes in Heaven. So, you know, someone like gets in a car accident and they die and, you know, he gets up to heaven and like the movies about like all the things that he saw and stuff like that. Right? So these personal experiences are like, this is how I know God is true. This is how I know God exists because he answered my prayer. Like I prayed for someone to get healed and they got healed. Right? But I can personally tell you that all of these arguments do not work. Because right? you know, as a pastor, I've had many conversations with many people right, about these things, about the reliability and the inerrancy of the Bible, right? You can trust the Bible because it's historically accurate or the historical accuracy of Jesus Christ. There's, you know, a lot of proof and evidence that Jesus Christ really existed. You can't really deny that. Or, you know, you have conversations about intelligent design versus evolution, why we can believe the biblical account of creation and all of those things. And, and I've never once... Right. Heard someone say, OK, I believe you now. And so now I'm going to give my life to Jesus or like that just settled it for me. Right. Even when they kind of agree with what I'm saying and they like see the points that I'm making, they, they never that doesn't sway them. That doesn't change them. Because what, what I realize is this. Right. Is that arguments and facts and evidence do not change people's minds. We just had an election, and that's what I kept hearing all the time. 
All these Democrats, they don't listen to the facts. They don't see like all the great things that Trump has done. And then, you know, the, 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 the Democrats would say the same things, right? The, the Republicans, they're crazy because they don't see the facts. They don't see the evidence and all the bad things that Trump has done, right? So I realized all these arguments and facts and evidence and proof that we have, right? They only serve to affirm our own beliefs, right? So facts don't inform our belief. Our beliefs actually inform how we interpret the facts, because right? the Christian and the atheist will look at the same sky and will we'll, we'll, we'll look at the stars and will we'll come to two completely different conclusions. Right? One will say, wow, God is great. And the other will say, like, oh, the, the universe is great or something else. Right? And I realize that like, this is true when it comes to God as well. Right? I do not believe in Jesus because of intelligent design. Right? I, am, I believe intelligent design or creationism or whatever you want to call it because of Jesus. Right? Evolution is just a different explanation for the same data based on your initial assumptions. Right? Right? I do not believe that Jesus is God because the Bible is true. I believe that the Bible is true because Jesus is God. Right? I don't believe um, in Jesus because of miracles. I believe in miracles because of Jesus, right? But a lot of people, we always have it backwards, right? We always try to get our evidence to prove to me and convince me that Jesus is real when it always should be the other way around. Like, you cannot trust your compass is correct, right? You cannot trust that your compass is working if you don't even believe that there's a North Pole, right? If, if you don't really believe that there's a North and South, how can you... What's the point of checking your compass, right? You first have to believe that a North Pole actually exists in order to trust your compass. But I think a lot of people do it the other way, right? If the Bible is true, then I'm going to believe in Jesus. But then you can't actually get anywhere with that, right? So how can we prove the existence of God when no one has ever seen God? There's no... You know, proof or, or evidence for those things, right? And a lot of people say stuff like that, where like, I would really believe in God if I ever saw him, if I could just see him one time, if God would give me a sign or answer a prayer, do a miracle, give me a vision, then I would have confidence, right? That I truly believe or, or God is truly there. But how can we know God without seeing him, right? And that's the question I think John is. Asking and, 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 and trying to answer, right? So it says, First John 4, 12, No one has seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us, right? So John doesn't say, hey, no one has ever seen God, but I have. I walk with Jesus, right? Or, you know, I spent three years with him. He says, no one has seen God, right? So what, so what you see right there, I think, is he doesn't go for the historical argument. He doesn't say, like, you can historically believe and trust that Jesus is real because I saw him 30 years ago, right, before you guys were born, right? He doesn't give the cosmological argument like Paul, uh, when Paul says in Romans, right, uh, that God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen 
so that men are without excuse. So, like, if you look at nature and the world that, that God created, that's his evidence of eternal power and divine nature. But John says, no, for me, the key is love. And all throughout the letter, he keeps repeating that idea, right? If we love, uh, if we obey his commands, which is the, the command he's talking about is to love one another. If we do what is right, love one another. If, you know, we, we walk in the light, love one another. Everyone who is born of God, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Right? So he keeps kind of making this connection about love and God. And then he says, even though we have not seen God, if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So now we have to think about what does that mean when he says his love is made complete in us? Right? The word complete right here means like finished or done, right? As in like mission complete, mission accomplished. We have met our goal. We have fulfilled our purpose. We have done what we set out to do. So he's saying that the love of God, the love that God gives us, is sent to us with a purpose, with a goal in mind, with, with something that it wants to accomplish. Right? So we have to think about, okay, so what is it that God's love is meant to do or trying to do? What's the goal? Right? So first we have to look at um, the, the love of God. Right, so here, First uh, John uh, four thirteen through sixteen, he kind of talks about it, right? Like we know that we live in Him, right? This is how we know that we have God in us, right? Because uh, because He has given us His Spirit, right? So He has given us the Holy Spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father sent us. So he sent, so He's given us Jesus to die for our sins, to atone for us to be the savior of the world. So he says he's given us his spirit, he's given us his son Jesus, and then if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is son of God, so he gives us faith to acknowledge. Like So that even our faith is a gift from God that he gives us, then God lives in us and he in him. Right? So he's like, these are the ways that God has shown his love or given us his love. Right? Giving us the spirit, giving us the son, giving us faith. Every grace, every help, everything that we need to be saved. right? But even though he has given us all these things, his love is not made complete because we are when we are saved. His love is not made complete when we, quote unquote, have faith or when we are in heaven or when we are holy. Right? These things are good, but the, these things are not the ultimate purpose of God's love. This is not what completes God's love. Right? God did not save us just to save us or to glorify himself or to just show his love right? or to be loved by us. All of these things are you know, good and part of God's will, but these things are not the goal of love. So now he talks about what actually makes right love complete in verse 17. Right? This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence in the day of judgment. In this world we are like him, or we, we are yeah, we are like him. 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Um, this is a very famous passage. I'm pretty sure most of you, or all of you, have heard of it, right? This, there is no fear in love. You know, it sounds like something you you you, you want to put on a Christian T-shirt. Uh, perfect love drives out fear. And I used to think that this meant that I should trust God because His love for me is perfect. He loves me just as I am. No, yeah, like no matter how sinful I am, no matter how bad I am. And so when I fully trust in his perfect love, then his perfect love will drive out my fear. Right? And then I won't fear judgment anymore. I'll have confidence and you know I won't be ashamed of myself. But if I have fear in my heart, that's a sign that I don't fully trust God. Right? And so this was like, you know, troublesome for me because even though I felt like I truly believe in God. You know, I really do. I, I really believe that he loves me, right? I, I have no doubt in that. There was still doubt and fear and shame that I couldn't get rid of, right? So I sat there like, oh, then I must not really trust in God's perfect love. So I was like, I got I to gotta find a way to have more faith. I got to find a way to, like, believe harder, right? But, like, how do you believe harder? How do you have more faith, right? Because I thought... A faith that's the size of a mustard seed was enough. Why do I need a bigger faith, right? So I realized I misunderstood this passage, right? Because the goal of love is love, right? The goal of love is love. But not love for God, love for others. So God doesn't want to produce in you the selfish egotistical human love that's kind of all naturally within us. Like we all know, even though we quote unquote love people and stuff, at, at the core, we're pretty selfish. We're pretty egotistical. We only love people that love us. We only treat, you know, love people that treat us kindly and say good things about us and like, you know, uh, compliment us, pat us on the back. We only love people that are good to us. But this is not the love of Christ, right? Christ died for sinners. Christ loved his enemies for people who mocked him, who disobeyed him, who hated him, even Republicans, even Donald Trump, right? His love is a selfless love, right? And a lot of times I think we treat God as if he's some narcissistic egomaniac who wants everything to be about him, right? It's all about you, Jesus, right? And, and, and God's just looking at us saying, all of you need to bow down and worship me. Look at me. Right? But that's not really it. Right? He doesn't really want us to love him back. You know, I know that kind of sounds weird saying it, but not really. Right? He doesn't want us to actually sing of his love forever. He wants us to go out there and love other people. Right? Um. The love of Christ is not like the romantic love that we think about, uh, the kind of love that you see, right, in books and movies where, you know, these two people just really love each other. They don't care about anyone else. You know, I only have eyes for you. I only care about you. You know, I, I only, you know, want you. And then the girl goes, you know, you know the same way. I, I only want you, right? No one else matters. Right? That's not the kind of love that God wants us to have for him. Right? Because 
God's love is actually so pure, so selfless, like so love, like so actually love that he actually wants you to love other people other than him. He doesn't want to like come back to him. Right. He wants you to love people that can't love you back, that can't pay you back, that don't deserve it. Like, you know, Jesus, he loves us. There's nothing we can give him. There's nothing that we can bring and and offer to him that's worthy of something. But he loves us anyway. Right. And so he's saying, when you love other people who can't do anything for you, who don't like you, who don't respond to you. You know, like this happens to me all the time, you know, as a pastor, I try to like sometimes text people, ask people how they doing. No response. Or, you know, you try to like serve them and help them preach to them, teach them, they don't care. But when you actually love those people, that's when his love is made complete. Because the goal of love is to produce more of the love of Christ, more of this love, right, in you. This is perfect love. This is when love has been completed, when, when love has finished what it was set out to do. Right? Uh, so it says in verse 19, uh, I don't have it up there, but it says, we love because he first loved us. So he's saying that's like that's the that's the route. That's the course of love. Right? God first loves us and then we love other people. Right? That's when love is made complete. That's when love has actually finalized. When we actually love other people in the same way that God loves us. When his love for us produces love for others. Because right? what is greater and more glorifying to God than you being like Jesus? And what is more like Jesus than loving others? Because like that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus was about. And so love one another. John kept repeating it and through me all. Throughout the weeks, I've also been repeating it. It's not just a command or a moral imperative. This is the actual, like, highest goal, God's greatest desire for you. Like, you know, parents have a desire for you, right? Oh, I want you to be a doctor, or I want you to be a lawyer, or I want you to, like, be successful or get married, right? These are their goals for you. God's goal for you is, I want you to be like Christ. And John, I think, very kind of smartly says, being like Christ is not loving God. Because, I mean, we all can love God, of course, but being like Christ is really, it comes down to do you love other people? This is the proof of God's existence. This is the sign that God is living in you. And then this is how you can have confidence before the day of judgment. When love perf- when love has become perfect, when, when now you're actually... Uh, Imitating Christ in this way, that's perfect love. That drives out fear. Now you have no more fear before God. You know, I realize like we are very, uh, we're like spoiled children, right? Because, you know, have you ever seen spoiled children on like, you know, Instagram or something like that? They're like, oh, my dad only bought me this Range Rover. I wanted a Mercedes. Like, you know, they're complaining about like, you know, weird things. And you're like, how did they, these kids become so selfish and ego, egocentric? 
Like, how did they become so messed up? And we just said, oh, it's because the parents bought them too many things. The parents, you know, never let them face hardship or trouble. They were too good to them. Right? But I don't think that's why that happens. Right? It happens because the, their love is not, that their love was incomplete. They didn't complete their love. They kept it all for themselves. And they didn't share it with others. And this is what we do. We receive all this love from God, you know, grace and mercy and forgiveness. But then we just keep it to ourselves. You know, God, you know, thank you for loving me. And I'm going to love you too. But you know, I don't care about anybody else. Right? And then that's what's, you know, makes you spoiled. That's what makes you rotten. This selfishness. So when you don't love other people with the same love that has been given to you, that's what makes your love spoil and rot into hate and evil and every kind of wickedness. This is why Christians are so prone to be graceless and unforgiving and judgmental, even though they have received the goodness of God. And they've received grace. This is how it happened. We're spoiled. We receive all these great things. And we believe we have all these great things. And then, But we act selfishly. Right? And I think this is why John talks about love one another so much. Right? Because if you say, oh, Christianity is me, it's all about just me loving God. Me focusing on God. That's the sweetest most beautiful thing, then you can miss the whole point. Right? That's what he says in verse 20. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Right? So, um, so in our effort to love God, I think, we ignore other people, and then we end up not loving God at all. Right? Kind of like, just like you have like all this sweet, delicious food. Right? You buy this food from the grocery, you put it in your fridge, you're like, I'm going to do all these things with it. But what happens when you don't touch that food for a week, two weeks? It starts getting old, it starts rotting, it starts getting moldy, and then now you can't eat it. Right? I think that's what happens to our love. Right? When we just keep it for ourselves. It, it, it rots and molds and it turns into hate and judgment and, and pride. And now we cannot love God whom we have not seen. You know? And so I think this is why, you know, and I know, you know, I, I kind of felt like maybe everyone's getting tired of me talking about love one another, love one another. And you're like, I got it. I understand it. But I think sometimes we don't. You know, um, so I'll leave you with just kind of a challenge from the early church. So this is like some quotes that ancient writers wrote about the early church. So a writer uh, named Cassilius, around 210 AD, he said about the Christians, they know one another by secret marks and signs. And they love one another 
almost before they know one another. The Greek writer Lucian, uh, he lived from 120 to 200 AD, said about the early church, it is incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, Jesus, has put it into their heads that they are all brethren. Uh, the church father, Tertullian, said, It is our care for the helpless, our practice of loving kindness, that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Look, they say, how they love one another. Look, how they are prepared to die for one another. Um, you know, if people were to look at us now, what would be our brand? What would they say about us? Right. But what I'm saying is when we actually love one another, it's not just a tired command that I'm trying to give you, but he's saying, this is the proof. This is the evidence that God exists. When people love each other in this, safe, in this selfless way, right. this is the evidence of God. So, um, you know, I just pray that, you know, with the holidays coming up, you know, let, let's try to take that idea seriously. How can we love one another? How can we love people in this church? How can we love, you know, uh, people who are not in the church, people who need help, people who are needy? You know, we know a lot of people are struggling right now because of COVID and all that, you know, because this is how you love God. Right? when we love one another. So let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, as we come before you, Father God, I just pray that you would help us to recognize how beautiful your love is for us, but that we would not misuse it, we would not ignore your love, but we would allow your love to work in us, to reproduce the love of Christ in our hearts, in our words and our actions. So help us to be like you as we celebrate, you know, Thanksgiving and especially Christmas to love one another as you have commanded us, Lord. And just be with us, Father God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.